Welcome back to another episode of Thinking Critically. Today I am joined by Daniel Betts from Daniel Betts Comedy. Uh, he is a old friend of mine from school, uh, way back in the day, it seems like now. And since then, he's gone on to found his own comedy brand. He does stand-up events. He travels around, has done shows for comedy, or excuse me, for veterans overseas. Uh, anyway, Dan, thank you so much for uh, agreeing to come on. And how are you? I'm good, man. Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. It's going to be fun. It, it's good to see your face. It's been a while. It's good to chat with you. And I got to say, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of, uh, of what you're doing, of, of uh, your Facebook posts, of uh, the website, your podcast, Thinking Critically in general, as well as Thinking Critical, uh, Thinking Critically, the, the, your brand. So I'm excited to uh, not only see a friend, but engage in what it is that you're doing, because I'm a big fan of it. So. Well, I certainly appreciate the support, and it is it is great to connect because it's been a while. It's been it's been a long time. It's been years. Uh, how long? So you're in California. How long have you been in California now? Uh, I started coming out here on and off for work. I would do kind of a rotational schedule. I'd do 28 days on, 12 days off, uh, and I started doing that in maybe 2010 or so. And I moved here to accept a full-time job uh, for good in, in summer of 2012. So uh, we're coming up on uh, eight years that I've been living here permanently. Oh my goodness. I'm trying to think about how long I know you, like when we first met. And I think it was when it was my first semester in graduate school, which would have been fall of 2007, I think. Yeah, oh seven, I think would be my would be my guess too. So I, I, over a decade. Oh my goodness. It's been yeah, it's been a long time. So yeah, in geology. That's when I was still in geology. Yeah. You were <laughs> yeah. a good geologist. I, I was a decent geologist. <laughs> no, you're a good geologist. You're a good geologist. And a good uh, physicist, right? Well, I like to think so. <laughs> yeah. A good student. Yeah. Very good. Uh yeah, so geology. Okay, so we met, we met in geology school, essentially. So you have a background in science, and then you ended up going into the oil field, right? So you currently work for, is it Chevron? I or, would have probably left the name out, but that's fine. <laughs> no, all right. no problem at all. You'll have to edit that. I usually, uh, I, I leave... I make no qualms about the fact that I work for oil and gas, but because I do stand up and I'm on stage okay. and I'll say things that are maybe something that, that my employer would maybe not be through. I've never had an issue, but in okay. general, as a good practice, I leave it out. But yeah, I mean, I work at Chevron. I've been there since 2012. Okay. Well, I can go back and edit that out. Not a problem at all. No, <laughs> leave it in, leave it in. <laughs> leave it in. Okay. Uh, anyway. Okay. Yeah. So you work in the oil and gas, or I should say mostly, uh, mostly just gas field. And you have a background, you have a background in science. Yes, and sir. so at some point you decided that you wanted to get into stand-up comedy. And I'm curious how that came about because, I mean, you've always been a, you've always been the funny guy, you know, right. going out, cracking jokes, things of that <clears throat> nature. But I'm just curious as to how this all, how you decided to make the leap into comedy. Because I remember having a very... Uh, we hung out and we had a lengthy conversation right before you were thinking about making the leap. You had just moved to California permanently like a year or two prior. I think this was 
summer 2000, like 14 ish or yeah. Yeah. Summer 2014. And you were looking at things to do. Cause I think you wanted to do like a side gig, like you, cause you had your primary source of income, like your primary job. And then right. you were looking to kind of like expand upon that. And you were showing me these like decal things that you were thinking about getting into. Do you, you know what I'm talking about? How you could, it was like dipping, oh, dipping yeah. like car parts in, to, in order to like decal them. It wasn't quite painting, but it was hydro dipping. That's it. Hydro dipping. You were showing me something like that. And then you also told me about comedy. And I was like, dude, you have to do comedy. Right. The hydro and, dipping. Why would yeah. you even be considering that? I think it was probably popular in the area of California that you find yourself in. But I went down um, a YouTube rabbit hole on that one. I'm always interested in something, right? I, I, you know, I, I've considered owning a bar. I, I, I looked into that. I thought it was pretty cool. At some point, I was looking at like the inflatables thing, like uh, like bounce houses and stuff. For, for okay. My, my uh, nephews were going to one pretty regularly. So my brother and I, brother-in-law and I looked into doing that. But yeah, comedy was, um, I, I had been thinking about doing it for so many, so many years. And it's funny, I, since I've started doing comedy, I, there's two things that have kind of popped out of my mind that I, that I remember now. One is I remember in fourth grade, I was like the class clown. Um, I was goofing off in class and I was kind of distracting all the other students to kind of make it hard for the teacher to teach and whatever. And I remember her, I distinctly remember her pulling me aside and, and having this sort of a come to Jesus moment of like, Dan, like, what do you want to do when you grow up? And I remember how it played out then. It didn't make sense to me until I was older. It, it stood out in my mind as significant and as, as sort of odd, but it didn't make sense to me until many years later. So she asked me this question, and I'm sure she was expecting me to say, I want to be an astronaut, I want to be a fighter pilot, <laughs> whatever. And at which point then she'd be able to hit me with that gotcha line that she's probably practiced a thousand times with other kids with a hundred percent success rate where she goes, well, then you're going to have to get good grades to be an astronaut. You know what I mean? Like in other yeah. words, shut up and pay attention. And I said, I want to be a stand-up comedian. And I remember her face with this like, <laughs> shit like this isn't gonna work the way i wanted it to on this kid there was this moment of like then keep doing what you're doing i guess because <laughs> you know uh, but i didn't remember why that was significant i didn't know at the time i was too young and then years later i was like oh my god now i know why she looked at me like that right so i remember that and i remember uh when i was a kid my dad took my brother and i to this like kind of bar and grill if you will a bunch of times one summer and it didn't make any sense to me then my brother reminded me since I've been doing stand-up that they had an open mic they had a comedy open mic there and he was going to the open mics and he was trying to expose me to this and I remember him even trying to convince me to go get on stage and I must have been like you know somewhere between like seven and ten and I remember thinking like I can't get up there and do that like yeah, I can make you guys giggle but I don't have like prepared material I can't go and do what they do so anyway fast forward to I had always wanted to do this, uh, but the story that I equated to was if you're a fan at all of like UFC, the president, Dana White, had been asked for, for years when he was going to have that guy Kimbo Slice in the UFC. And he was like, never. He, he's the toughest guy at your backyard barbecue, but he's not a mixed martial artist. And that was what stopped me from doing it. I thought, well, I might be the funny guy at a backyard barbecue party with a bunch of attorneys and accountants. 
but am I funny enough to do it on stage? And that thinking always prevented me from doing it. So anyway, long story short, uh, I have a buddy that owns a bar and he just hit me up one day and he was like, Hey man, we got a comedy show tonight uh, at seven 30. You're opening up. You got five minutes up top. I'll see you then. And it was like five 30 PM. So I got my voicemail. I called him back. I was like, Hey dude, I'm not, you're out of your mind. There's no way I'm doing this. He said, well, you said you've always wanted to do it. And I saw that you had material in your phone. I said, no, I showed you premises, like ideas uh, of things that I could turn into material. And he was like, you'll be here or you won't. So I showed up, I did five minutes. It, it actually went pretty well, which is a little bit atypical. Most people bomb. Um, not that I haven't since, but uh, I went, I did my five and then the rest is history. I've been, I was open micing and, and performing and writing ever since. And then that got into uh, producing shows and hosting them and booking them and promoting them and everything else. So anyway, long story short, right? No, that, yeah, that's a, that's a great story. That's so cool that you have that. So that time from childhood when your teacher pulls you outside of the classroom, I mean, that's fantastic. And you knew right then and there that kind of what you wanted to do was you wanted to do stand-up comedy because that's kind of what you were, that's what you were passionate about was making, making people laugh. That's way yeah, too I funny. Just liked, I just liked making people laugh, plain and simple. Yeah. And still, I still do. <laughs> I can totally relate. Uh, third grade, I essentially lived outside of my classroom because I was a class clown and because I was just bored in school. I was bored with all the material and I thought distracting others and well, distracting other people and making them laugh actually entertained me because I didn't like the material, but I lived outside uh, because my teacher would put me outside of the classroom all day. So I can totally relate to having the teacher <laughs> pull you aside and reprimand you for being a bit of a class clown. But yeah, and uh, in your case, probably you weren't even probably challenged enough, maybe. And I think that was a little bit of it for me, too. It, not that I'm some, some savant or some genius, but the material just wasn't challenging. And I think even the style of teaching didn't engage me. I think that's been my fascination with science, right? Is if you're a, sort of this naturally curious person and you have this sort of thirst for knowledge and a thirst for answers, um, that's where science sort of engages that part of my brain. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah that is interesting that you, uh, that you also have this science aspect to you. I mean, I've always viewed a lot of the kind con the comics, like some of the brightest comics out there, the, I'm not talking about, well, I mean, even, even the ones that make stupid jokes like Larry, the cable guy, but I've always right. thought of comics as being actually quite intelligent because you have to sit there. The same thing goes with some of the brightest uh, like rappers and hip hop artists out there because you have this creativity side of you where your brain is, is working overtime and you kind of have to manufacture all of these things. And I know you have some preset material before you go out there, but then you don't ever know how the audience is going to react. Right. Uh, you kind of have to feel them out with the way you give punchlines. And then I'm assuming you have to adapt to that. So you're, and then having to create new material too. You can't do the same material forever. Uh, so, but yeah, you, so when did you first become interested in science? Because obviously you have a bachelor's degree in geology. So that's a science. When did, when did that all come about? I think, I mean, for one thing, I think I was always kind of interested in it. It, it, it I was never a good student uh, my entire life. I was never a good student. I, I just always found classrooms boring. I'm probably a bit of an ADHD poster child. And, and, if, uh, and I think people have mixed views on ADHD uh, like they do right now about coronavirus, for instance, right? Um, and, and everywhere on that spectrum, you know? But 
um, there's one thing that they'll kind of say about people with ADHD is that there's this ability to hyper-focus. Uh, and so you can't keep my attention for more than 20 minutes in a classroom setting, right? But if I'm planning a snowboarding trip or I'm working on comedy material or these other sorts of things or science that would engage me well enough, it's like I could really kind of lock in on it. And I remember that fairly young. There was just something interesting. It was like, I'm learning how the planet works. I'm learning how Earth works. I'm, I'm understanding something as simple as like, why eating a Tums helps with antacid. What's the chemical composition of that, right? Why does that work? So I always remember that, but really I had a, I was a terrible student all throughout high school. I did a semester of community college. No, I think a year of, a year of community college and I was just sort of failing miserably at that. So I joined the Navy. Um, and when I got out, I had this sort of a renewed sense of what, what the purpose was for higher education. I went back to school and it was actually um, an earth science class at uh, College of DuPage at COD. And there was a, a, a professor there, I think retired shortly after the semester that I had him for. But his way of teaching science was, you know, it's like he was one of these guys that's been teaching for 35 years and he knew it. He knew how to engage knuckleheads like me. He knew yeah. how to engage someone like me that was losing his attention span in the middle of class or whatever. Uh, and just had this way of teaching and explaining and the visuals and the rocks and minerals and things that you could hold that really engaged my other senses a bit. Uh, and in fact, I remember um, in his class, if you were happy with your grade, you did, it was either uh, if you were happy with your grade, you didn't have to take the final. No, I think if you were getting an A, already in the class you didn't have or above a certain percentage or something you didn't have to take the final and so a couple days before the final he kind of called out all the names of everybody that didn't have to take it mm -hmm. and then you could like skip the last week of that class which was basically prep for the final going over everything from that semester and prepping for the final and he called out maybe eight or nine names and everybody got up and they left and and he called my name i didn't have to take the final and i just stayed sitting there uh -huh. And everybody looked at me like, what are you out of your mind? Like, you don't have to be here. You're stuck in school. Like, it's like a jail cell. Get out of here. You're free. Yeah. But I just remember being like, yeah, but I like this. I'm interested. And, and at the time, by the way, I was a business and accounting major. Um, and so that class is what changed me over to a, a geology major, actually. So I just stayed in the class. I was like, no, like, why would I leave? This is the most fascinating thing I've ever been a part of since I've been in school. Um, and so I did one semester at NIU before officially switching over to uh, geology. That's fascinating. Uh, I mean, it, it's incredible to me how it appears as though just one particular course and one teacher influenced your entire career. Yeah. Like just yeah. one good teacher. I have a similar story uh, with physics, but uh, yeah, it, it's just incredible when you look back at kind of what you've taken, like education path or career path, how it could be just like one or two people that have more or less influenced the direction. I mean, it's probably not that limited, but if you look back at it, I mean, it's only a handful of people that have really influenced the direction of your life. And it's incredible yeah. how impactful a teacher can be and why teaching is so important, right? Unfortunately, it appears 
it, I get a I get a feel for the current atmosphere or the current climate, at least in the United States, is that teachers aren't as important. That right. They that they aren't valued as much as they should be. And I think your story, and I know at least my experience too, just kind of speaks volumes to how important having a good teacher is and making sure that they feel comfortable, um, or that they don't have you know they don't have to work multiple jobs outside of teaching in order to try to make ends meet things of that nature because they are incredibly valuable members yeah. of society but uh yeah that's 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 a, that's a really cool story so geology that was it the one teacher at cod and you were done it changed everything i mean yeah. I, I certainly remember um my science teachers in high school i absolutely remember them and i remember my science teacher in uh junior high even uh, and I remember getting my best grade, I think, in junior high science. And I wasn't a good student, but I really kicked ass at the labs. I'm a more hands-on learner, and, and science engages that, right? Whereas, mm -hmm. like, um, you know, some of the other, some of the other um, subjects just don't. It's sort of like, look at this, memorize it, pass the test, we get our funding, done. You know what I mean? Whereas, like, science, it was like, all right, man, let's light the Bunsen burner. Like, let's get <laughs> Let's get going. And, yeah. and I was kicking ass in the labs alongside, I was leading the way on a lot of our labs compared to the kids who were the A students. They couldn't put it into practice. Okay. And I remember the same thing on, on field camp. Um, I remember my professor at NIU being a little bit blown away that I was kicking ass in field camp. I got it. I, it, it came together. These other kids memorized things and they were better students. And so they prepared and they studied and they did the homework and things that I wasn't really doing. Um, but all of it was for the end result of getting an A on the test and an A in the class, but it wasn't sinking in. They weren't, you know what I mean? It wasn't yeah, practical yeah. to them. Well, it's, it's different. Part. Yeah, it's different. It's um, You're actually doing the field work, like you're doing right. experimentation versus doing the uh, just the memorization of facts and regurgitation. So. Yep. You know, you can think of the coursework as kind of like theor theoretical work, right. and then the actual when we did the field camps or when you do the lab work, that's the actual experimental work. So, yeah, I mean, that's what it means. To, yeah, the application. And actually, when you look at science, the vast majority of scientists are experimentalists. It's the application right. of the knowledge, going to the lab, going to the field, and gathering the uh, resources that they need or conducting experiments that they need, and then bringing it back and analyzing it and doing all sorts of stuff with it. But yeah, that is, and, and, that's interesting. And by the way, comedy is experimenting. It's experimental work, right? I mean, you see a lot of times when a, uh, something hits the, the, the news media or whatever, and they latch onto some comedian said something horrible. It's usually not a well-polished, well-oiled, uh, perfected bit that they're doing on stage at a show. It's usually an open mic where they're trying things out, right? And there's really an experimentation to getting out at the open mic and you kind of throw something out there in the way mm -hmm. that you drew it up in your head and the way you write it and the way you kind of polished it in your own mind. But I need the results of my experiment, which is the audience. I need them to say, yeah, we like that or no, we didn't, or I was with you until you said that, or I can look out and I see like, I'm losing them. I'm losing them. They're starting to, to fade or we're late in the evening and they're tired or we're late in the evening and they're drunk or um, I said this word instead of that word, 
you know, uh, even like when it comes to politics, for instance, I've got a, 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 a joke that involves Trump, but it's really not a Trump joke. It's not a Trump punchline. There's a misdirection. And so I'm leading you down this sort of road of politics and Trump. And it's a tightrope that I'm walking because if I bash him too much, there's going to be people in the room that are going to unplug from me. Um, and then I see the other side kind of going, you better bash them. That's what they want. <laughs> yeah. And so I'm leading you down this road and then I'm going to completely change gears. And that's where the joke is. But I have to walk this tightrope of really getting you to go down this rabbit hole with me about Trump and about politics for a minute and, 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 and believing it. And then I've got to change gears on you. You know what I mean? So I'm watching them and I'm, and I'm sort of studying them scientifically and going, all right, what are they liking? What are they not? And you do that a bunch of times at the open mics and you start to figure out what's working and what isn't and, and you change it, you know, you, mm -hmm. you call an audible and you, and you sort of figure it out. So I think there's a science to it, you know? No, absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, I think that, that you can take actually scientific thinking and kind of translate that or move that laterally to any aspect of life, wherever you end right. up, any sort of business. And obviously for you, uh, within comedy, it has, it has helped you to be a better comedian, right? To kind of read the audience a little bit more and then fix. So you experiment slightly and then you uh, adjust based off of the results of that experiment, which is essentially the level of laughter, the, the engagement from the audience, the body language. Uh, I'm assuming you've probably become very good at body language, learning how to read people as a comedian. Like you have to be, right? Because you need to learn to read your audience. Otherwise, you're going to fail as a comedian because if they're not, they, right. I, I can just imagine that that's a very valuable thing uh, to be able to do. Well, and go ahead. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of variables in that experiment, right? I mean, it's, it's what time of the evening it is. It's how early I'm going up versus how late. What did the comedian just before me say and do, um, you know, and, and you know, it's like, sometimes you're not getting laughs and it's like, my joke sucks. I got to fix this. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, or it's a great joke, but I stumbled over my words, or I took them a little bit too far down that the Trump rabbit hole that I was referring to earlier, and I've upset a few people in the crowd. Uh, people are kind of drunk, and so, you know, or it's a, it's a group of college kids, or it's a group of older folks. So what's going to work? And that feedback, and what's really neat about it sometimes is there's like the long-term studies, like you would have of like the, like the side effects of, of a drug right? To say, all right, what's this going to do to me 10 years from now? So you get that in comedy, uh, which is say, I've tried this joke a bunch of times and here's what works and here's what doesn't. But then there's the very instant feedback, which you can get, you know, you've got the little stick that's on fire and you put it next to the thing and either it flames up or it fizzles out or whatever, right? There's that, that old experiment. Um, and so I get that instant feedback too, where, hey, this is a joke that normally really works kind of not right now and I'm seeing their faces and it's, ah, what's going on here right and, and then yeah. adjusting on the fly which I think is really fun too have you ever done improv because I can imagine improv is probably some of the more difficult type of comedy to do uh, and it takes an incredible amount of like creativity and you just have to you have to practice I mean similar to the uh, similar to uh, rappers that freestyle where they're yeah. just kind of creating this, just creating on the fly. Yep. And uh, I was just curious as if, I was just curious if you ever had done any of that yourself or 
since I've been no. doing comedy, it's not what I lean towards. I mean, I'll, yeah. I'll, 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 uh, I'll ad lib and kind of improv and riff and stuff on stage plenty, but I don't really flex that muscle a lot, or I shouldn't say, I shouldn't say flex. I don't train that muscle so much. I did mm -hmm. throughout like junior high and high school, I did some theater. And so you would do improv exercises in theater and things like that. Uh, but n since I've been doing comedy, I haven't done anything really kind of specific or organized. It's just been leaning towards ex explicitly comedy. That's interesting. Do you think maybe uh, you would get a little bit more into, is that something that maybe you want to try getting into a little bit more in the future or are you pretty comfortable with kind of what you've got worked out? I'm more comfortable in my space. Yeah, I mean, I'm, space? I'm interested okay. in doing it for the sake of like when a football player takes ballet, they're not interested in ballet. Yeah. They're interested yeah. in, in the balance and the body mechanics and, and the strength and flexibility, right? So I would be interested in it for the sake of improving and honing my craft. Okay. But the specific improv side of it is less appealing to me as strictly being on stage and telling my jokes. Fair enough. Yeah, that's, uh, I like that. So could you run me through a little bit of like how you actually, how do you practice comedy? I'm curious as to other than just getting up on stage a bunch of times in front of all different types of people and then just doing it over and over again. Uh, because you have to obviously write it. You have to figure out something that you think would be funny. Maybe you have like a close group of friends that you kind of stress test whether or not would be really funny or you say jokes when you're out with friends to see if they laugh at it first. And you're like, okay, maybe I could incorporate this as part of my routine at some point in the future. How exactly does that process all work? All those things work. There's a, a, a buddy of ours in the local comedy scene and uh, we use his last name. I won't throw it out here. Let's say his, his, his last name is X. Okay. He performs his material on people all the time in conversation. It's a, frankly, it's a little bit annoying, but we'll call <laughs> it, uh, we'll call it Xing. Okay. his name and, and, and Xing. So he'll perform his material on, on us. I mean, he'll hit you up next next to you at the urinal and just start trying his jokes on you. You're like, dude, will you stop? <laughs> um, so people certainly okay. do do that. Some people throw stuff out on Facebook and see kind of what's working, what's getting a reaction. Some people try their stuff in front of the mirror. Some people try their stuff out on their, their spouse or their significant other or whatever. And there's there's a spectrum of all those things. I do a little bit of all of that. but it But really... It's like a lot of things. The best way to do it is to just do it, right? The best way to get mm -hmm. good at it is to just do it. I used to rock climb uh, quite a bit years ago. And, you know, you can get the little grip strength thing and you can strengthen your, uh, your grip strength and your forearms and whatever. And that's going to help you. But there's nothing like climbing to get better at climbing. And mm -hmm. so for me, I got to get on stage. A lot of people really sit down with the notebook and they write and they, and they look at it and they digest it and they go, what's funny, what isn't, blah, blah, blah. And to me, that's a little bit like your hypothesis. You can put that all together, but now you're going to conduct that experiment and see what works, right? And so you can come up with the greatest hypothesis in the world and you can come up with the greatest experiment in the world. It doesn't mean that you're going to prove your hypothesis, right? So mm -hmm. you can sit down and you can hone what you think is a brilliant bit and take it to the stage and your hypothesis does not pan out. It just doesn't destroyed. Work. Yeah, no one laughs at it. It just doesn't like, work. Yeah. yeah. So for me, again, like the classroom, I don't want to spend a ton of time in the classroom going over my notes. I want to get into the lab 
and see what works. And that's just my style. So yeah. I like to get on stage with fairly virgin jokes and just try them out and, and see what works and see what doesn't. And then I'm taking my notes in my head as I'm doing it. And I'm going back and I'm going, all right, you know, there was too much oxygen there or there was, you know, whatever. And I'll adjust my variables accordingly from there. That, that's how I do it anyway. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's awesome. I'm curious as to if something falls flat the first time that you try it, do you ever try it again and just maybe think that perhaps it was the audience? You know, it wasn't the yep. right audience for that particular type of, type of joke. Yep. You know, Same like, thing, this, right? This I gotta, joke is, go ahead. Yeah, I got to isolate my variables, right? Yeah, so okay. I got to say, why didn't that work? Yeah, sometimes the joke just sucks. But the only way for me to know that is to isolate the variables. I got to go, I got to try it on another night where maybe I'm in a better mood or I've had more sleep or I, I'm not as drunk on stage or <laughs> maybe the audience is a little bit more or less drunk or, or, or older or younger, or whatever. So yeah, usually I'll, I'll bring something out a handful of times before I'm able to kind of, you know, digest that experiment and go, okay, mm -hmm. the, the, the variable here, sadly, is my joke sucks. Like I gotta, <laughs> and so then I'll try to maybe fix it. You tweak your experiment and conduct it again. Um, and see if maybe you conducted your experiment poorly, right? Uh, there was a variable that I didn't account for or whatever. So sometimes I'll, I'll retweak it and I'll, re I'll tweak it again. I'll retool it a little bit, but eventually you can, sometimes you can kind of close the chapter on it and just go, this just, it's not there, you know? Oh. And then even that, usually I'll file that away. And, and sometimes six months later, you can revisit it. And, and the variable that's different now is me. Right. I, I, I'm maybe I'm better at comedy now. I'd like to think, um, or something has happened in my life that I see things a little bit differently. And I realize, Oh, the, the joke there isn't that I'm an idiot. The joke there is that this is what it's like to be a dad. Right. And so I can take it in a little bit of a different direction. And then the audience is, you know, you got people in the crowd that are dads or whatever. Like, ah, I get that. Right. So mm -hmm. anyway. Yeah. That's really interesting how, Again, you're like applying the scientific method to how you approach comedy and your, how you stress test all of these different types of variables. And then you formulate new hypotheses throughout old ones and kind of figure out what works. Uh, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's pretty cool. So I'm realizing even more as I'm telling you how much it is that I do it. I think some of it's a little bit second nature, right? It's like mm -hmm. a muscle memory to some extent. Do you think, I, I know you're the host here, but I want to ask you a question. Do you think um, that you can sort of bring people into science and make them really interested in it? Uh, or do you think that the majority of people that are scientists are that way because they're sort of built like you and I are, which is to have this natural curiosity that you, you need to quench that thirst a little bit. So am I, are you and I built a certain way that we like science? Or, or could you take any old schmo and, and introduce them in the way that like that, that teacher did to me mm -hmm. and get them to be interested in science? Have you given thought to that? Yeah, it's something I've actually thought a lot about because I really enjoy teaching and I love science and I love communicating science. And it troubles me how uninterested some people are, are yeah. in science when it is arguably the most powerful tool that we've ever created. I mean, it's, it's a process, it's a, it's a method that we've created. It started from philosophy, it's just thought, and we went out and we tested it, and then all of a sudden, we, uh, you know, 
we tested this particular uh, process or method uh, to actual to the world and then you all of a sudden are able to distill these truths and from these truths you can create technologies and these technologies make the world a better place and that's all because of science so it's like the most important thing that we've ever created and you have people walking around who uh, don't really don't really understand it don't really appreciate it and i think that that's a huge failing yeah as a species <laughs> uh, yeah. be, because i mean the reason why we even have able to have this conversation today you know through the computer is because somebody created the internet somebody put all of the effort into learning the science behind how you create uh, the computers um, so all the material science all of the uh, materials engineering etc i mean it's just uh, it, the foundations of it all are science right right and so when it comes to communicating science it, i just feel as though there's that we could definitely do a better job and you may not like for example taking taking uh taking your example you're talking about earlier i mean you may not have even ended up in science you've always been naturally curious but you may not even had ended ended up in science if you had never taken that science class with that one right. professor you made it you may have ended up in business what were you taking accounting business yep something like you may have done that and the scientific community would have missed out on a uh a pr productive member of society in that area i mean i'm not saying that you could have done that with business but the scientific community would have missed out right. and when it comes to communicating the science i think that the average person is naturally curious. I, I think that as children, we have crazy imaginations and we're super curious about the world. And some of us do a better job of carrying that on into our, as we grow versus others. But I think that everyone has this inner scientist in them. It's just that the education system, the way it's presented to them, where they, it, it kind of squashes that out. They don't have the right professor to kind of push them in that particular area. And even, if you're an adult and you didn't go into science, so this is going into, I think like the second half of the question you asked, I believe that you can actually make people appreciate it, but it depends on how you communicate it to them. Yes. You can't just spit facts at them yeah. because you know, people will just kind of close off and be like, why do I need to know any of this? If you can somehow figure out how to make it relevant to their life, then they will open up and I think become more susceptible to assimilating some of the science into into life or just even being more appreciative of it you have to make it applicable to their life right and you have to give them a yeah. reason to want to learn about science because some people aren't naturally curious they're just trying to figure out how to let's say make more money i mean that's a big thing in our society is you know people have to pay bills they have families to raise etc so how I don't have a whole lot of free time. So why would I spend my free time learning about science? Just these kind of, you know, curious, unless I'm curious about the world and it's fun and entertainment, but if I could figure out how to turn that free time into learning, cause that's what they normally, I mean, people that are trying to get ahead, they're usually, they're, they, if they have free time, it's not really spent recreationally. It's spent trying to figure out how to get themselves out of the situation and try to further get them ahead in life. Uh, because they're not comfortable where they're currently at so if they could for those individuals if i could get to them and say you know, the free time that you do have i want you to focus on science but not just for the useless memorization of facts but i'm going to tell you the science that will actually 
help to make your life better. And once you're able to do that and they're able to then improve their life, hopefully in the process they'll get more free time. And with that extra free time, maybe they'll be interested in assimilating more science uh, into their free time. Uh, if they have children, perhaps you know, they will be communicating this to their children about it. Uh, you, so, you, you said a couple of things that really stood out to me that I think are worth unpacking a little bit because I genuinely asked you that question I didn't, I didn't come into it with an answer in my mind. It was, it was like the way a kid asks mom, like, how does this work? Right. I, I was like, yeah. let me see what John says. Cause I, I don't know. Right. I hadn't drawn any kind of a conclusion yet, but you really sold me on the point of the natural curiosity that kids have. And I went, yeah, you know what? You're right. We're all kind of born scientists somehow or another. It sort of fades away a little bit when you're older, and that probably is a failing of the education system, right? And certainly parents can fail in that regard too, but if you get teachers that can engage kids early on and keep that curiosity and that sort of natural wonderment and that thirst for knowledge and a deeper understanding going and engage them in a way that's fun and in a way that speaks to their specific uh, uh, learning styles, Right. And just keep that, just keep fanning that fire. Right. I think at some point that fire just starts raging and, and then it, you can't douse it after that. Right. Yeah. But for other people, it sort of, it, it smolders a little bit and then it fizzles out a little bit. But um, you said that, and then um, you really sold me on that line of thinking. And then the relatability, I want to say that um, on your guys' Facebook page that you shared an article the other day that was about, um, sort of scientists have a bit of a responsibility sometimes to kind of respond to some of these things, right? And, and to sort of put that- Yeah, in the, na the nature article. Yeah. yeah, I know exactly and what I, you're talking about. And I think, sadly, that's a shortcoming of the scientific community is the Absolutely. relatability. There's this intellectualism and there's this almost elitist nature that can happen sometimes among scientists where it's like we understand things that the common man doesn't and i'm i'm overselling that right for the sake of making this point i don't think that scientists are are inherently snooty or or some of us are, some <laughs> you're are. Gonna find, yeah you're gonna find that in any industry though wherever that's you <laughs> very true that's very yeah. true i think you probably stop me if i'm wrong i think you see that a little bit more on the physics side then on the geology side, a little bit more maybe. I remember a, a good yeah. friend of ours who's a, who's a physicist um, in a band. I'll leave it at that. You can probably figure out who I'm talking about yes. um, without bringing up names. But he, he said that a little bit about it. It's sort of like the better the physicists are, the more they tend to be that a little bit. This a little bit of elitist, like I know this and you don't, you know, sort of grovel at my feet. There's certainly a little bit of that. And then I think there's a little bit of this natural who tends to want to be scientists in the first place and what their sort of makeup is in the first place, right? Who decides that they want to be the front man in a band versus who decides that they want to be a, a, a boxer, you know, like what's your composition that you're into pugilism versus science versus a band versus an accountant, right? Some people are very introverted and some people are very outgoing. Some people want to be in a lab, sort of these lab rats in the dark. They don't want to talk to anybody and they don't want to have this sort of a community outreach. 
Uh, and so that relatability, I think, is really important. I was thinking about this leading up to our conversation today. I remember, and this isn't to get political, just as an analogy, but I remember there was a, a shooting, and I want to say it was like, you know, sort of white police officer, unarmed African-American, or maybe even unarmed African-American teen. Uh, and I want to say it was Ferguson. Don't quote me on that. But the point of it was this. Um, the media sort of ran with this narrative of, oh, it was a white cop and an unarmed African-American. And, and scientifically, I look at it and go, okay, what were the circumstances? Was this racially motivated? You know, let's not jump to that conclusion. I'm open to that. that maybe that was yeah. the case, right? And then it was sort of the whole police department was was Caucasian and an overwhelming majority of the community was African-American. And I, I, I was fascinated by that, right? It was like, okay, that is very interesting that, that the, the police department would not be more representative of the demographics in that community. And I, they had like, you know, again, I'm, there's people that might watch this or listen to this and jump down my throat on this, but I believe it was a, an African-American like police chief or deputy chief or somebody high up, whatever, kind of who was on that police department. And they came out and, and a reporter sort of asked or he was addressing it. And they were sort of saying like, hey, how come you don't have more African-Americans in your police department? And he was like, we're not getting applications. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that our process and, and maybe this is open to interpretation. So I forgive the politics side of it. That's not yeah. where I'm trying to go with this. But it was, you could understand, hey, if you're getting nine out of 10 applications are African-American, but only one out of 10 police officers are African-American, there's a problem with your system. But if 10 out of 10 applications you get are Caucasian in a community that's maybe 75% African-American, why is that? And the science of that was very fascinating to me to say, okay, so what are we doing? And I apply that to the scientific community. What are the demographics of, of professional scientists, right? Why are there not more women in science, right? And you could make the argument, are, are they excluded? Are we not reaching out to them? Or are they less drawn to that? Are, are, do women have a sort of a biological predisposition to early childhood development, for instance, as opposed to science. Is there anything to back that claim? Or is it because of things like you, you buy the little lab kit with the test tubes for the boy and you buy the dolly for the girl? Yeah. Uh, what outreach is the scientific community doing? And I think that's where we're failing miserably in terms of, like you said, not being so professorial, not being so elitist. Um, not being so introverted lab rat, so to speak, getting out there, engaging people in these Facebook discussions, engaging via podcasts, like what you're doing, creating a Facebook page and a Twitter account and a website and these things that are digestible that you're doing to engage non-scientists and say, look, there's a reason you, you think that, or you feel that, or when you flip this switch, that happens, or that you're predisposed to thinking coronavirus is all a, a hoax or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I think I see a very serious responsibility in the scientific community to say, hey, this is why diversity matters. This is why we do need 
female scientists and we need African-American scientists and we need Asian scientists and we need short and tall and big and small. You need that diversity because you have to have folks who are maybe more outgoing like me or people who are argumentative or this diversity within the community where we understand science and the methodology and the skills, but we're inclined to maybe be the guy having, having a drink or a cigar and having that conversation with someone who doesn't think that way and engaging them. And I know I'm going on a bit of a, a rant or a sidebar here, but this is why I really love what you're doing. So I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan. <laughs> I love what you're doing because a podcast, it's like, duh, of course there have to be podcasts like this, that someone who can stumble across this and go, I like what that guy had to say. That makes sense. That resonates. That clicks. He said it in a way like my college professor that got me in a way that didn't get someone else. It's, it's so critical. I love that article. I loved you sharing. I love what you're doing. Thank you. I certainly appreciate that. And you've been, I know you've been super supportive even ever since I started this a little over two years ago. And uh, I certainly appreciate, appreciate everything that you've done, you know, sharing the posts and everything like that. Of course. And you know, obviously I couldn't agree more with what you are saying. And I think that as a community, we absolutely, the scientific community absolutely needs to do more. And that nature article that recently just came out, uh, in my, I mean, that was a, a clarion call, if you will, to the, to the scientific community saying that we are not doing enough. Look at what's going on with all of the craziness with the, with the, with COVID-19, the coronavirus, and all of the disinformation, the conspiracy theories, it is absolutely bonkers. It's insane. I mean, you've, you've had people coming out saying that it's, it was engineered. Uh, it, was, it was engineered in a Wuhan lab. Uh, it, it, 5G causes it. And, I mean, and then there's other stuff that's uh, going around too. You know, even recently with those two doctors, which I know that you're very familiar with, uh, as somebody coming from California, those two doctors with bogus statistics saying that, hey, you know, we don't need to listen to the scientific community. This is no worse than a bad flu. All the shelter-in-place orders, that's all non nonsense. And you know, that's, that's where I live, by the way, specifically <laughs> Bakersfield, California. I've been treated by the blonde-haired guy, Dr. Dan or Daniel. I've been treated yeah, by that, that's That's crazy. <laughs> and I'm, yeah, assuming, so I'm looking at this, I, I'm like, no, my town is in the news right now and not in a good way. Yeah, I, and I can imagine that a lot of people in your community share their sentiments, though, that yes. th they probably think that they were wrongly treated and that it's something coming from the MSM and it's fake news or you know, you're, you're probably, unfortunately, seeing a lot of that, right? A lot of it. A lot of it. And I think I, I, this is part of why I love so much what you're doing and I want to see a whole crap ton more of it. And I want to see you just continue to explode and continue to dig in and do it and pay the dues. I know launching these things is tough. I know it takes time. I know it's like comedy. If you feel very defeated at times, it's like, God, why can't I get enough people to listen to this? I think it's an important message or I think it's a funny joke. Right. But yeah. Um, seeing what's going on with this. I mean, this is a, a real big wake up call as to how we got here, our underfunded education system, our underappreciated education system, 
even how we choose to spend our money and what we place value on, right? I mean, you know, we're, we're paying basketball players $100 million a year to throw a ball into a hoop, and it's fun to, to just sort of mindlessly drool and, and watch. And then you got people making minimum wage. They're our front line right now. I need the pimple-faced 19-year-old living with his mom and dad at Walmart putting hand sanitizer on the shelf so that I can get it. That's who I need right now, and we're not willing to pay those people. I, we need teachers to teach critical thinking, the basic foundations of science, to challenge things, but not challenge things like a conspiracy theorist where you say, I challenge this because this is what the mainstream media fed me. Yeah, just to be contrarian. I immediately yeah. reject it, right? Yeah, the contrarian. Yeah. I need to challenge it because that's what critical thinking should be, but I need to challenge it with a basis of, of science. And what we're seeing right now is at a time where access to information has never been greater in human history than it is right now, and by the time we finish this, it will be better than it was than when we started this. There will be that much more information out there, and it will be that much easier to obtain it. And yet, um, Dunning-Kruger effect is oh, yeah. something I'm seeing at an all-time high. Confirmation bias at an all-time high. Cognitive dissonance at an all-time high. And when it comes to even these doctors from Bakersfield, it's a perfect example of appeal to authority. And if yeah. you understand the basic foundation of an argument and the basic foundations of science and Dunning-Kruger and confirmation bias and things, then you can understand what they did. And I don't know that it was deliberately misleading. In some cases, potentially, there is a political bias, it would seem, with both of these doctors, potentially, um, and potentially a bias in terms of their own finances. Who knows? Uh, I don't want to just dismiss what they're saying based on those things. So maybe if things were not deliberately misleading unintentionally or due to a lack of understanding of the statistics and the application of those statistics, it was misleading. And you need a scientist and you need a doctor to understand where they went wrong, but then they have to understand the arguments that they used, how they use them, and, and the fact that for a vast majority of people, there was an appeal to authority. Oh, well, this guy's a doctor, so he must know. Yep. And you have to understand that and be able to break that down in a way that's relatable and is not this professorial, intellectual, elite a-hole. And you can get through to people and say, yes, they are doctors. You're right. Uh, but, but you don't go to uh, your proctologist for a broken femur. No. Yeah, they're not. I mean, they're they're emergency care doctors or uh, what exactly do you recall what kind of physicians they were? They're MDs, but they're not they're not epidemiologists. They're not virologists. They're correct. MDs with with time in the ED and they run an urgent care. But one is a um, ophthalmologist. I think he's an op ophthalmologist. But, okay. but to your point, yes, you are not an epidemiologist. You are not an infectious disease specialist or expert. You took a semester in school on infectious diseases? Yeah. No. 
Yeah, I mean, like to your point specifically. Okay, so let's let's break it down. What happened? So there absolutely was an appeal to authority, right? You have two guys who are dressed in scrubs to basically indicate to the audience that they are indeed MDs. They introduce themselves as doctors. They're wearing the scrubs. That is an that is immediately to establish credibility in the eyes of whoever is viewing it, saying, "I should know what I'm talking about." And then they go through very convincingly, and they use statistics and statistics are so easily manipulated, unfortunately, these days, unless you absolutely know what you're doing, which is why it's becoming increasingly important uh, that people are learned or become more trained in stats. Um, I mean, I, w- I just had a conversation recently with a, uh, a woman who is working in a, a neuroscience lab on the East Coast. She's a doctor herself. And even at a journal level, we were talking about how important it is because of everything's going big data, even in science, how important even having in the peer review process, a statistician, somebody who has a PhD in statistics, uh, yeah. to just review the statistics in the paper because most scientists are not experts in statistics, but they use statistics. So it's really, really important that people at least have a foundation, like on the public level, foundational understanding of how statistics should work. Because what happened with these gentlemen is they took statistics and words that sounded technical to the audience, and they just did a terrible analysis. And they just butchered the statistics, but the public didn't know this. Right. So you have the public looking at this, you have the appeal to authority because these individuals are credible. Then due to confirmation bias or motivated reasoning, all that information is coming right into them because that's what they want to hear for those individuals who want to open up society. Uh, and then you have something going viral, mainly helped by the news media. So I think Fox News scooped him up and said, let's, uh, let's kind of feed this to our entire audience. And it's one of the most watched news uh, news networks in the entire nation so then it just absolutely goes viral and then the scientific community has to step in push back super hard and even when we do that we had incredible pushback you have these people who think that they know more than the scientific community on this because you have these two doctors that have they should know better and i i absolutely believe that they were motivated to do this because of financial reasons or because they wanted to open up the economy i don't i mean it's just completely irresponsible it goes against your oath to do no harm as a doctor when you step outside of your area of expertise and then you pretend to know what you're talking about or you do a statistical analysis when you don't have a strong background in statistics all of the mistakes it's insane like this the mistakes that they made were basic statistical sampling mistakes uh it's it's just it's remarkable and I had to push back super hard against some people when I was putting these articles online saying, hey, look, these individuals don't know what they're talking about. Yes, they are MDs, but their positions are being censured by physicians, boards, and other sorts of scientific uh, communities, or right. I should say uh, groups, because they have no idea what they're talking about. And this is not the position of a community position of the community is that we are this is absolutely deadlier than the flu based off of the statistics or the numbers and that we absolutely should be practicing social distancing which includes the quarantining or the stay-at-home orders because it helps the disease burden uh, particularly when it comes to flattening that curve and making sure that society's healthcare systems don't become overwhelmed Uh, but the the amount of people 
that I encounter. And of course, you know that I was one of these people at one point because of my anti, well, I should say, I was skeptical of vaccine safety and GMO safety for a while. So yeah. I thought that I knew more about the community so I can understand it. But to be on the flip side of this and observe the psychology and the extent to which these people kind of try to poke holes in the arguments, uh, it, it, it's remarkable to me. I mean, some of these people are very bright and it does take some work for me to pick through their arguments. Uh, but I just wish it was easier for people to change their minds, to be honest with you, Dan. It's, it's remarkable to me how, how much people just want to stay fixed in their beliefs and that they don't want to update them and they don't want to change it. And by the way, the, the whole Facebook battle, I have, uh, since this whole thing has gone on, I'm sure, I mean, you and I are Facebook friends. I'm sure you've seen, I've gone hard in the paint. Oh yeah. Uh, I appreciate it. The scientific community appreciates that. <laughs> but, and, yeah. and I, and, and what's funny too is I'm going real hard in the paint trying to say, look, this is what's going on. Here's the facts. Here's the statistics. Here's the figures. Here's what we know. Here's what we don't know. Here are some assumptions that we could probably intelligently draw from them subject, you know, caveat and say, we don't know. And this and that. Um, but I also have to, here's, here's where the, outside of the scientific mindset comes into play, I have to consider for a second that if I go too hard, and sometimes you want to, I understand it, I get it. I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm not a statistician at all, but, but I understand it. Certainly I would say better than your average bear. I've also been almost obsessively digesting the information and most folks have read a couple of articles or seen what their, what their pundit has to say to them who has a, a motive for saying what they say and how they say it. I'm trying to digest some of the raw information and really understanding it at a sort of core level. And so there's times you just wanna scream, you go, no, you idiot. Like it's, you know, the, if I push too hard, they'll unfollow me. Yeah. They'll snooze me for 30 days. They will unfriend me, they'll block me. And the people that I'm trying most to get to, I've now lost them. So you have to step outside of science for a little bit and go, how do I engage this person? I've seen this a couple times too. A couple of folks I've had one, one person I don't know terribly well. I, yeah, I really don't. We've been Facebook friends for a long time. It was this guy dated a girl that was a girl that I dated as best friends year, years ago. You know, so we've known each other, but not well. And we have um, very differing viewpoints on a lot of things. And we've had some Facebook Messenger conversations that have gone really well. Okay. But I posted something in response to something on his page, and he just tore into me. And I was like, whoa, man, like we've had all these great conversations. What the hell? But it was this sort of need on Facebook to not be proven wrong and not be blasted and not be yeah. owned, right? So I said something on his page about, hey, I'll chat with you kind of privately. You know what I mean? And then privately, he he said, Hey, the people on my page are kind of more likely to agree with you. And I said, I don't need the numbers. I'm not interested in being backed up by now there's this majority where, where nine out of your tens, nine out of 10 of your friends agree with me. And so then you're supposed to change your view because nine out of 10 feel the way that I do. That's not how I'm going to win this debate with you. I'm going to win this debate with you by applying sound logic and reasoning and scientific method and facts and understanding, but in a way that's relatable to you, where 
maybe I can convince you that way one-on-one. -on -one. The mm -hmm. numbers isn't going to be how I beat you here. And by the way, it's not winning and it's not beating, right? I, I, I want, you know, I, I want to win in that I want you to see it my way, but it's not about checking the win-loss box for me. And the other it's thing about I've getting seen, at truth. I mean, yes. any, any, yeah. any sort at of engagement. Core. Yeah. At the core of it, it's getting a truth. And as a society, there is a failing and this definitely comes with the critical thinking is we don't, when you engage on social media or when you're in groups and you have a difficult conversation and it's like, you got to have difficult conversations, right? Because you're never going to agree all the time. When you have difficult conversations, you need to learn how to keep your emotions in check and then get to the facts because both of you, you're not competing against one another, even though that's traditionally historically how we have done things. You look at it as a competition, but it shouldn't really be looked at that way. It should be looked at, it should be looked at a, uh, the two of you are engaged in this, this dance to get to the truth. And you're not, you're without one another, you're not actually going to be do it, going to be able to do it as well if you were by yourself. That this other person is challenging your belief system, which is always difficult, but without them challenging it, neither of you ha may have the opportunity to become a better person at the right. end of it. Do you know what I'm saying? Yes. Like, yeah, it should be really viewed at the, viewed as this this discovery or brainstorming session instead of a debate. And I hate the fact that, that we call it a debate because it calling it a debate makes it seem like it's a competition. When at the end of the day, what really should happen is that not somebody loses and somebody wins, but you both win. Like the pie gets bigger. It's not it's not a zero sum game where, hey, you you won and I lost. It's even if I ended up having to admit defeat where my position was wrong and dismissed based off of, you know, sound arguments, sound logic. Uh, Cause I didn't have a complete worldview. I had my facts wrong. Even if that's the case where I was incorrect, I'm still better for it. Right. Because yeah. I'm able to update my worldview. My worldview is now better based off the best evidence available. So both of us have won. Nobody lost. But what's tough is, what you're saying, I, I hear you and I agree 100%, is from a scientific mindset of, I want to learn something. I want to be proven wrong. I want to prove my hypothesis wrong. I mean, fundamentally, that's what we're doing, right? We have a hypothesis and you sort of desperately try to prove that wrong. And sort of in the absence of being able to prove it wrong, you sort of prove, prove yeah. it correct. Right. And, and that's yes. what these conversations could and should be. Um, okay. What do you have for me? Change my mind, convince me, but people don't have that scientific mentality going into it. And so we're trying to correct. It's like, uh, did you ever see Charles Barkley fixing his golf swing? If you've no. never seen it, okay, no, anybody, anybody watching or listening to this right now, pause and go watch <laughs> Charles Barkley's golf swing. It is the ugliest thing you've ever seen in your life. And he was trying to fix it. Well, trying to fix a disgusting golf swing that you've had for 20 years is really hard to do. And with my own son, when we play sports in the backyard, he wants to, to be a pro right away. He wants to instantly catch the ball and tag somebody. No, 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 no. You got to catch it first. Then we got to tag them. And then we got to break down how to catch it. 
right? I want you to learn it the right way from the get-go because you'll learn it the right way at seven years old and you will dominate everybody that's 15 when you're 15. If I let you go from seven to 15 doing it wrong because we're just having fun out in the backyard, and of course there's a line here, right? But mm -hmm. you're going to learn it wrong. And now at 15, I got to teach you how to do it the right way. It's so much harder. And that's, to me, the crux of what we're facing, right, is you and I can think scientifically, but I'm trying to get someone who doesn't think scientifically to approach this not as winning an argument and confirming their bias, but to be enriched by learning something new. And by the way, I'm approaching the argument that way. In this case, it's pretty, you're not going to change my mind that coronavirus is no big deal. Um, but but yeah, we have to start there. And, and we're missing that already. They're already coming into it without a scientific approach. They're not trying to prove their hypothesis wrong. They're trying to yeah. win. And, yeah. and so as scientists, we need to potentially engage in, in sort of unscientific ways. You have to realize you're dealing with people who are not interested in learning something new. So our traditional way of saying, okay, here's the information, here's the statistics, and you're going to now change your mind, right? Wrong. No, yeah. Yeah, present, yeah, fact presentation, just strict fact presentation is never going to change anyone's It's mind. not going to work. No, it's and, not going to work. And I want to say one more thing about the statistics. I've seen two things already that have been really upsetting to me. I shared something, and it was a friend of my wife's that was like, oh, your numbers are way wrong. And he did the, he did the numbers, right? It was, you know, how many infected and how many dead and division, right? You got your numerator, you got your denominator, and here is my uh, percentage. But he never did the whoop, whoop with the decimal place mm -hmm. to convert to percentage. Yeah. And so he presented this as like, oh, you know, 0.01%. Uh, uh, there were two things I saw. 0.01%. Oh, uh, mortality rate. And I said, no, by your own math, you didn't convert to a percentage. So we're talking about a 1% mm -hmm. mortality rate. And that is a big damn difference. Okay. Number one. And number two, he took it based on total U.S. population. Well, you need to take it on the number of people sick, not the whole U.S. population. You, you can't say a, a mortality rate of based on people that have never been infected, right? Yeah. And those very basic math statistics and a scientific, let me be proven wrong here, as opposed to confirmation bias and Dunning-Kruger effect, those things were missing. And so this guy was dead set in, see, so basically no one's going to die. And it was like, oh my God, this is <laughs> fundamentally wrong. Yeah. What, well, what happened with this individual once you corrected and you pointed out that, hey, what you presented initially was not even a percentage. I so took, the true percentage is 1%. And then I, I took a, a notebook <laughs> and I did all the math. Yeah. I gave high estimates of, of death uh, from flu. I gave low estimates. I gave a 10 year um, high and low. I gave the averages. I showed my whoop, whoop with the decimal point. <laughs> You know, I did the little dupe and the dupe and the yeah. arrow and then the new one. Um, I did all of it. I broke it down as, as monosyllabically as I, as I could to, 
and I really tried to approach it from a place of not, aha, I'm right and you're wrong, dumbass. Yeah, yeah. It just it just doesn't work. It was sort of no. like, hey, check this out, see what you think. And <clears throat> it was on my wife's page. I'm not Facebook friends with, with the guy. So at some point, I felt he was digging in his heels enough I wasn't going to change his mind, and, and I backed off of it. But I, I tried to at least leave it out there and hope that maybe in the right set of circumstances, you know, two whiskeys in tonight, maybe it gets into your brain a little bit. If I can just plant the seed. So that's all I was able to do with it. So I don't know. And of course, this was relatively early on when people could say, hey, this is less deadly than the flu. And then you look at it now and you go, um, okay, well, there's more people dead than, than, than large estimates of flu deaths in a really bad year. So what now? Here's the other problem is, is now the goalposts have moved. So I can, I can prove to you that this is, I say prove, that this has killed more people than the flu did since October of 2019. But now the goalpost moves because they say, well, uh, the numbers are being overreported. This is where I'm going to do it, John. <clears throat> Bang on my desk, shake the, <laughs> shake the camera, make the big sound that you'll have to edit out later. Uh, that's just, ah. yeah. yeah, no, the, I mean, that's a common tactic moving, moving the goalposts where they have unrealistic expectations. It really doesn't matter at the end of the day, what you present to them because it's always not going to be good enough. And that's really unfortunate. But one thing that I wanted to say and that I, I truly appreciate you and, and there's other people too. It's, uh, but I mean, I appreciate the fact that you will engage and that you try to correct the wrongness when you see it. And I want to, encourage you to continue to do that. And even if, and the reason why is because we have good evidence that even if you do not change that person's mind, there are going to be plenty of individuals who read through those threads and that are fence sitters. They don't engage, they won't even hit the like button, but they're, they're gonna sit there and they're gonna read your thread. And they're gonna be like, that makes sense. And then they're gonna be on your side, but you'll never ever know it. God, and, man, I, I sure hope you're right because that gi that gives you a little bit of fuel to keep kind of fighting the good fight. I, I engaged in, in, a, in one on, a, on another friend's page and somebody, you know, with the whole, we're doing better than Italy. This is earlier on. It was like, no, we're not. If you benchmark it, we're really doing worse and it's going to be worse. We're just two weeks behind. He couldn't understand this. Yeah. And, and at some point, I don't know if you've done this, I turned off the notifications for the post because I thought that's it. I don't want to argue. And I don't want to blow up my yeah. friend's page and I don't want to hear any more of this. I'm going to turn off the notifications, but I couldn't stop myself from going back to that friend's page and scrolling to the post and reading to see if they had posted anything else. Yeah. And this is where that win mentality came into play. Exactly what you're saying. I kept seeing responses and I kept smashing my fingertips with a hammer to not respond. And I had turned off the notifications and I thought I'm never going to convince him, but I just kept thinking there's people on here that might be reading this and I just can't allow them to be infected with your misinformation. I yeah. have to win and I hate to use it in those terms, but I have to combat your misinformation. Yeah, but I wouldn't say it's winning. Yeah. It's the, the, the need to, you're seeing something that's wrong and the need to not be a bystander 
when you right. have the capability to go out and to correct it. Yes. Uh, and you're not, I mean, even going into it, you're not going to win that conversation. You know that. I mean, I engaged in a very lengthy conversation recently where I just happened to be the last person to respond. Uh, but that conversation was not win because I knew that she walked away from it having the same opinion that she did going into it. Uh, but I just felt that there was more information that needed to be shared. And you've probably seen when I engage, I like share a lot of links too, so that people have resources available to them to go read more if they want to. But um, anyway, yeah, continue your story. But I just, I mean, you shouldn't view it as the need to win, but the need to not be a helpless bystander, the, the, the need to actually go out there and to combat the misinformation or the disinformation. Uh, so and that's that's where when I have friends and, and family members who have been like, yo, chill, just chill on Facebook. And, and by the way, there's real life consequences for me to, to doing this because particularly when things become political like this, if I argue the position that coronavirus is serious and we should take it seriously, then you are labeled, people make this whole gambit of assumptions of what your political beliefs are and who you're voting for. And so then it's like, oh, so you're okay with killing babies. And you're like, oh God, <laughs> right? And so yeah, they'll make these wild leaps, right? Yeah. And so um, I will alienate people and I will frustrate people and people will unfollow me and snooze me and unfriend and block me. And that hurts me as a comedian because I'm trying to get my comedy out and grow my brand and grow my, my audience and my viewers. And I like to make people laugh. And if I alienate you, I'm shrinking my audience. I'm shrinking the number of people that will come to a show when I'm performing or to an open mic I'm hosting or performing at, or if I'm producing a show, they're not going to buy a ticket. So that hurts my pocketbook. If you delete me from Facebook, now you don't see that I'm running a show that you would normally like to come to, but you don't want to come to it now because you think I'm an a-hole because I have a different political or scientific view than you do. Mm -hmm. That hurts my pocketbook. It hurts my growth as a comedian. I don't want to do, I don't want to do those things, but here's what I think is really particular about this case that we're facing right now and, and broader to global warming as well is if you want to believe that any number of conspiracy theories, whether it's moon landing or chemtrails, and I don't care, I use those just as examples. I hope nobody's going to inbox you that I'm an idiot for bringing those up. But if you want to believe in those things, that's fine, right? But when it comes to a scenario like this, where your lack of scientific understanding and statistical understanding has the potential to harm me and my family members and my friends and, and hundreds of thousands or millions of other people because you're out there coughing on people and not wearing your mask and not washing your hands and whatever, or you listen to these ding dong uh, doctors in Bakersfield, you're putting lives at risk. And what we see is even the two week lag between us and Italy, people couldn't comprehend that. I got into a fight with a family member who I literally basically at the end of it was like, I don't want to have a relationship with you. Now this is extended, <laughs> his extended family, but they were so insulting and condescending and attacking of my views. And I said, look, my daughter's at a higher risk. My mother-in-law's at a higher risk. My father-in-law's at a higher risk. I have to take this seriously. If you don't want to find, 
But the gist of it was, I was like, I'm not coming to a party at your house this weekend. As this was sort of starting to really ramp up, it was that weekend before everything kind of shut down. Okay. And I said, I'm not coming over. And they were sort of insulted and upset by that. And maybe as a scientist, I engaged scientifically. I'm not coming over. And my sort of human side didn't say, I, I'm not trying to offend you. I'm not trying to upset you. You're challenging my beliefs and I can't come over and put my family at risk. And I don't want you to take that personally. I'm sorry. And I don't mean to challenge your views. Just please respect that for me and my family, this is the decision I'm making and I'm not going to. And, yeah. it, and it, it begot this sort of fight that harmed our relationship. But I couldn't not have that fight. I couldn't disengage. It was like, listen, you can believe whatever the hell you want, but, but when your beliefs pose a threat to me and mine, I have to engage you. And he, he believed that we were handling it better than Italy. And I couldn't get through. No, we're just two weeks behind Italy. If you look at where Italy was on this date and look at where we are on this date, we're worse. And you keep doing that every day, every day, every day, every day. We're worse. This is going to be really bad here, barring a change in our direction. If two weeks, if you couldn't understand two weeks, what hope do I have for global warming where I've got maybe a 10 year yeah. delay? Yeah, no, right. Yeah, absolutely. And this and to me is a, a really big canary in the coal mine for that. Yeah, no, yeah, this is actually a great test, in my opinion, as awful as this is going through right now. I mean, there are a number of silver linings to this, to this event, and the economy is going to suffer. Unfortunately, people are going to die, but this is a good stress test of the global community or global society's response to a major issue that that revolves around science. Like you have the scientific community saying one thing to you, how are you going to respond as a society to that? And luckily we get to see the exponential growth curves and the flattening and all of that happen on a much shorter time scale versus something like global warming where you're talking about decades to hundreds of years. And I, I'm really, really hoping that one of the things that come out of this is people will take the scientific community much more seriously than they did before. Uh, because global warming, as you know, uh, we have roughly, we have less than a decade to kind of get our act together. Otherwise, according to the scientific community, things are going to become very, very uncomfortable. I mean, I was just reading earlier today that I can't remember the news outlet, but this is going to be, they're already projecting that this is going to be one of the most active hurricane seasons that we've ever seen. And events like this, you know, you just just had the fires burning down California not too long ago. You had literally like the apocalypse happening in Australia with all of the fires, followed by like gigantic thunderstorms and floods and like mat, like huge hail. And you just have all of these strange, really extreme weather events happening. And people don't seem to be really putting the pieces together saying like, hey, this was all predicted decades ago by the scientific community that this was going to happen and to fix this it's going to take decades of work if you look at the half time of co2 in the atmosphere so you know things even if we shut everything off today is like as far as greenhouse gases go the earth would continue to warm for years 
because yeah. of everything that we've already released. Right. So in my opinion, not only are we going to need to transition to renewable energy sources like non-carbon-based energy sources, but then we're also going to have to develop technologies on a mass scale to actually pull carbon out of the atmosphere. Uh, because I just, I just don't see any other option at this point. Uh, because, and that, because that's how bad it's gotten. We've crossed all of these thresholds that scientists have warned us about, but we failed to act because we don't do very good. We're not very good at long-term planning or thinking for long-term, which is why a lot of people don't have retirements or they live paycheck to paycheck. But when it comes to something like this, like with global warming or even with the current pandemic that we're living through, people need to see, they need to zoom out and see the bigger picture because yeah, I just don't, I just don't see any other way. Uh, I just don't see any other way. And one other thing that I wanted to say back to your Facebook discussion with your family member, Dan, is that he wasn't challenging your belief system. You're acknowledging the facts coming from the scientific community, the best evidence available. And for all intensive purposes, these are scientific facts. So these are facts, these are, aren't immutable facts, but these are facts based off of the best evidence available. And decisions, the best decisions are made from the best evidence available. So therefore, you have somebody who is not looking at the real facts or they're misconstruing the data. Here you are looking at the scientific facts coming from the community. You're acknowledging them, and this person doesn't want to, over here, doesn't want to acknowledge the facts. So when you say he was challenging your beliefs, he wasn't. He was just refusing, yeah, yeah. He was refusing to acknowledge the facts because you're acknowledging the facts. Right. And you're kind of how you're conducting your life is formulated around the information that you're giving. It's not you like believing. You don't have to believe the facts. Yeah. It's, it's you, a, you acknowledging the facts and saying, okay, this is where they lie. Therefore, I'm going to direct my life based off of the best available evidence that I have. Right. That's a really, really important distinction that you made. And, and it's, I'm glad you did because yes, it feels in those moments like your belief systems are being challenged, but, but you have to separate that from, from what's really going on because if you can't, you will respond with emotion. And we both, we both got into that where we were responding to each other with emotion and you're feeling like your belief systems are being challenged. And so then you're sort of attacking and there's name calling and there's all this crap that you don't need. But the reality is it's not the challenging of the belief systems and, and who and what I am at my core. It is the actual information. And as long as you can remember that distinction, your arguments will continue to be better. Whereas, you know, I, I was just as guilty as, as him in terms of allowing my arguments to devolve. Yeah. into a place of name calling and all this sort of crap that you don't need and that doesn't help anybody no it doesn't yeah, help when, anybody, when, right? yeah when the conversation gets to name calling you just that's kind of when you should throw the towel in because nothing is going to get accomplished and it just makes neither of you look good then no exactly yeah. and so yeah. it's funny too because yeah we'll have to fix it and it, it will be in part the realization on my part of here's how and why it, it went wrong and that will allow me to fix it. You know what I mean? So that understanding of here's how and why that went wrong, right? And yeah. it will allow you to fix it. When you say, when you talk about global warming and, and the gauntlet that has been thrown down before the scientific community, um, my fear is that the scientific community can face that challenge head on 
and we can look at it as the greatest challenge that the scientific community has ever faced, which is not science, but getting science to the people who need it, right? Mm-hmm. We can we can band together and we can formulate a a we can we can get into the war room together and we can come up with a plan for how to combat that. But it takes more than just us. We have to fix education, right? And if we're going to fix education, then we have to to some extent fix politics so that we can make sure that the money gets into the education system the way that it needs to, right? And that we can get the teachers into these classrooms that need to, there's nothing worse than when you see uh, a teacher misleading youths based on their own pre, they don't have the scientific knowledge. So they're faced with, yeah. here's what the, here's what the book says. And then you get this science, this, this teacher that sort of goes rogue. Well, because of my political beliefs, I'm going to tell the kids that this is what's up. And you're like, Oh no, no, that's not what's in the books. And if I can't convince you to know that, then how can I convince you to teach the kids to have the tools that they need so that when she and I or he and I meet in a Facebook conversation, that we can have that scientific approach towards getting knowledge and getting to the truth of it, right? Otherwise, I'm trying to fix Charles Barkley's golf swing. And and the challenge may well be too great. What scares me about something like coronavirus and the moving goalpost or global warming is if we succeed in flattening out the curve and we decrease the numbers, well, then they will say, see, it was no big deal. And you go, no, it was a big deal. We succeeded because of science. We succeeded because we canceled NFL and NBA and MLB, whatever. When it comes to global warming, if we can sequester greenhouse gases and we can remove them from the atmosphere and we can, we can make these improvements that allow us to not see this maximum devastation that we're fearful of, mm-hmm. they will go, see, told you it was stupid. And, you, and, yeah. and so then still 10 years down the road, you have those folks are raising kids who come home from science class and go, dad, look what I learned. And mom or dad go, well, that's dumb. And here's why. Let me tell you something about these idiots that thought global warming was real. And that's a bunch of, and by the way, I got to, yeah. I have to say this, you might have to, well, I don't, what I don't give a shit, do it. I keep my employer out of podcasting. I keep them off of the stage. And here's, here's a good reason why. If you have enough of an audience to, to watch and listen to this podcast, someone will inevitably come along and go, okay, so dipshit in his garage over here said that uh, global warming is bad. And it's linked to man, but didn't you say he works for an oil and gas company? Yeah. And they will they will use that to to dismantle my argument and and not so defend yourself. Let's hear it. Let's 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 go for it. Fuck. All right, that's not what I was. <laughs> that's not what I was planning that's on fine. doing. Well, you can Maybe, you, you can go whatever no, route you want. I, I I will a little bit. Here's what I'll say. You and I can maybe talk after this and discuss what you think it is a right approach here. If my language, if, if my potty mouth and my curse words, there's a part of me that says, if I curse on this podcast, you will have to potentially limit your audience of people that can watch it, right? I would say it's mostly uh, a more mature audience. I mean, this, this isn't something that's built for... I get that, right? But, but, but also, kids, yeah. I don't want to be seen as crude or crass where people will then 
dismiss what what I or we are saying because yeah. I'm a jerk and whatever. At the same time, there's a part of me that says, guess what? If I come off as too professorial or elitist, you won't like me and you won't like what I have to say. But if I throw an F-bomb out there, I'm relatable to you. Uh, well, use, what, use whatever language you want. I mean, the only thing is, is I would say, uh, if you can communicate it with the least amount of expletives while still being relatable, I would, I would, I would take, I would take that approach. That's my, I have that question. Let me throw it out there just rhetorically, if you will, maybe is to say, is that the way that we do this? I don't know. But, but if we minimize the expletives, can I get to uh, Joe in his living room in the Ozarks in a relatable (laughs) enough way Right. Remember, this was the thing about George W. Bush. He was the guy you wanted to have a beer with. Yeah. And that's what we like about Trump to some extent. Right. Is is he's relatable. Yeah. He's the common man. Me personally, I didn't want a president that I could have a beer with. I wanted to have a president that was a million times smarter and more educated and disciplined and determined than me. Yes. But how does the voting mm-hmm. block work? If my curse word can get to, to Billy Bob and the Ozarks, then let's leave it in. But I, I want to say it. this in defense of, of my position, for example. So you can bleep out my employer's name if you like, uh, or you can leave it in. I don't care. It's not going to get back to them and get me fired. But I had a meeting. I pr- I'll send you. Be careful about this. I could. <laughs> I don't know that I will. Send you slides from, from a meeting this week. We okay. report our carbon footprint. We, re- we, we report um, um, gas flaring. We report if there's spills. We do all these things, right? I was in a meeting this week in the slide with the official company logo and name on it was that our official position is that we accept and do not dispute that the burning of fossil fuels contributes to global warming. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that we can and pull the plug tomorrow, right? We need cars, we need laptops, we need phones, we need electricity. Electricity needs, we need electricity so that we can create medicine, mm-hmm. so that we can put people on ventilators, right? And we should transition to renewable uh, resources and, and green energy, but we can't do it overnight. It can't be instantaneous, no. right? So I'm part of that problem. I get that. And so are you. And so is everybody listening to or watching this. They still have plastics in their refrigerator, right? Um, But it was interesting to me to say, boy, I'm talking to people who don't believe in global warming, don't believe that it's real, don't believe it's happening at all, or don't believe that man is contributing to it. And here I am, a scientist. And here I am working for an oil and gas company who's admitting it. How can that not be a nail in the coffin for you? to believe that it's not real. Our official position is it's real and we're making changes to how we do our business to minimize our carbon footprint. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's interesting the, the disconnect there. And it's obviously not you because you are a scientist that works for them that is a loud proponent of making changes in order to reduce our carbon footprint. but. As you admitted, there are people, and I've observed this too, I won't name names, but we have other people from the geology program who ended up in oil and gas who 
have concocted all of these ideas that somehow the scientific community is mistaken about this and that there are other explanations for why the planet is warming, right. uh, at least at the rate that it is. But really yeah. quickly, I wanted to, I actually want to defend you because I feel as though that I need to. And so you, you work for oil and gas and you admit that global warming obviously is something that society needs to be very concerned about. And I don't think that somehow anybody who works in the oil and gas industry, unless you are a denier of global warming, but if you work in the oil and gas industry, those are jobs that are needed because we have an economy that is built on fossil fuels that we've done for the past 100 years. And we have all of this infrastructure that's not, as you admitted, going to go away overnight. And I, I think that any reasonable person would see that. You can't, this entire infrastructure, global infrastructure is not going to go away overnight. Now, could it, could it have been, could we have transitioned to renewable or clean energy quicker, like from the past or that we currently are? Is it possible? Absolutely. And that's and the reason we have it is, is is because of incredible political pressure and all the money being flown, uh, uh, being tossed around, all the lobbying, et cetera. But the individuals who work in these positions should not be ridiculed because they are valuable members of the society. They, a good portion of them probably realize that their jobs are either going to translate to something else more renewably energy related because I'm assuming those companies still want to exist and make money, so they're going to be forced to do that through the right. marketplace, or they're going to leave and do something else. But in the meantime, why not support yourself and work that job because the job is needed. If the job wasn't needed, there wouldn't be a position for you. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be valued by the marketplace. So do that job, you know, live your life. And then do whatever you can, obviously, to make changes internally or to encourage or be outspoken about the global warming and the changes that need to happen. You know, obviously, within reason, because you don't want to, you don't want your employer to look negatively upon you to the point of wanting to fire you. But right. uh, yeah, society shouldn't look negatively or disparage individuals such as yourself who work in that particular field, uh, just because you work there and we have an issue. You, know, you can't, because if we acknowledge that, we would say then everybody working in those jobs, would they should just quit. And right. then it's like the, it, society would collapse because we don't have the infrastructure. It's not possible to do that. If anything, society should be looking to government level, government for changes, and then also supporting all of the renewable energy uh, companies like R&D innovation. So that way in the marketplace, you can, renewable energies can be competitive. So you get the price per kilowatt hour down low enough and you make it more attractive of a energy source than oil and gas. Now you really can start the momentum, start the, uh, the ball rolling because you have marketplace competition, which unfortunately is the strongest type of competition that you can possibly have in our society. Because particularly in the United States, we're incredibly capitalistic. We're so market-based. And as much as we want to detach what people do and the value that people have in our society from the marketplace, the sad fact, the sad fact is, is that 
people are intricately linked. Their value is tied to how valuable they are in the marketplace. And that includes all sorts of technologies. So if you can get the renewable energy technologies to be competitive in the marketplace to where industry who is buying energy says, I'm going to buy that clean energy because it's cheaper than the fossil fuel energy, then that's really when you can have a shift. And it, it can't happen overnight because that would be chaos, right? It'll be a slower transition, but it's important that it happens as quickly as we can possibly stomach it because we do not have the time anymore. So that's yeah, what I have to say. Thank you. I appreciate that. it because yeah. it is it is a common argument, right? I, I have a I have a cousin who we we debated it a bit and he was sort of like, Well, dude, look at you, you hypocrite. You you work for an oil and gas company. And it was like, Well, I mean, I understand your argument, but let's break that down, right? I mean, mm you cannot live tomorrow without oil and gas. You can't. There's plastics, there's electricity, we need the ventilators, you need gas to, to move your car. You know, The guy lives on a farm that he bought and you're chopping down trees and you're burning a wood-burning stove to heat your house. And so you're saying that your carbon footprint might be less than mine and maybe that's true but you hold the wood to your house and your car, right? I mean, we do have to be practical. I do need to have a job and you do need oil and gas right now, but I am willing to transition. I am willing to lose my job and I'm willing to be a part of the change within the company, right? <clears throat> Where I think you need government to some extent is we have to plan out how we do it methodically, right? Um, I can be, my employer is willing to look for ways to offset things. I can go to my employer and say, what about this? And be heard and we can look at it and see if it's a, if it's a valid, if it's a possible way to go about making these changes. I've got a, a real good Navy buddy from Morgantown, West Virginia, and his family, you know, his uh, father-in-law had a shop and I think he also did something with uh, like he welded something or fixed the wheels or the axles or whatever on coal cars. So okay. he, he made or fixed or repaired or whatever the, the cars that hauled the coal in the coal mines. And as a result, made good money doing it. And as a result, he and his wife were, were foster parents to countless number of kids. And so they did a lot of good in their community and saved a lot of people because of the money that they made through the fossil fuel industry. And if I talk about shutting down the fossil fuel industry, he'll come along and say, look, I've seen it happen. They close a mine. The local economy is so devastated. You know, your $300,000 home is suddenly worth $75,000, but you still owe 275 on it. You can't yeah. sell it. There's no one to buy it, which means you can't leave. There's no way for you to sell it and pay that mortgage plus the new mortgage or go bankrupt in the process. There's nowhere for you to now go and your skills are outdated. What can you do? So you stay, but slowly the businesses pick up and the people who had enough discretionary income can pick up and leave. And before you know it, you're stuck there and there's no doctors and there's, there's no, no yeah, there's no economy. There's no economy. There's nothing to do. And he's got a valid concern. And yeah. that's where the theoretical and the hypothetical, that's where the rubber meets the road. Right. That's where we do need to some extent government to come in and say, hey, what about plans to to train these people to do things that that are different? Right. 
Um, there were programs to take out-of-work coal miners and put them into IT. Yeah. You can stay there, stay in your community, stay in your house that you're maybe upside down in, but have a job and have income and start to rebuild that community. You guys are skilled workers. Let's get you welding the, uh, the, the, the blades for uh, wind farms. You know, I mean, this is where we do need that government. And that's where I think all the things that we've talked about today, we got to start to, the scientific com community can do their part, but we have to start implementing changes at an earlier level. Right, we we have to we have to diagnose the problem and begin treating the underlying causes as opposed to scrambling to slap band-aids on it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, getting to the root causes, and I mean another thing too is I just want to highlight is is just the the complexity of the problem. I mean, it's just it is so complex, and it's going to take solutions from all areas, all aspects of society in order to address it. And people you know, can't just point one finger here, point one finger there and say, that's, you know, that's it. That's what we're going to, that's the problem that we're going to address. And then that's going to be it. It's like, no, then fixing one problem is going to create other problems. There are problems that you, that are there that you may not even know that you have until, uh, until you fix other problems and you're finally able to pull back the layers and see that there are other problems. Not that you created new problems, but there were problems that you couldn't even see that were always there. Right. Uh, so, right. yeah, it's 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 very complicated, and it's going to it's going to take some serious work, uh, particularly because of our energy demands. The society that we have built from the fossil fuel industry is remarkable. The entire modern society is built more or less since the industrial revolution. Everything you see around you uh, has been built gathering energy from fossil fuels and we just cannot do that anymore because it's destroying our planet and if we want to have a sustainable future um, or uh, a sustainable future or society um, where something that we can be proud of in the future and that you don't you don't have these catastrophic weather events you don't have issues growing food etc uh, we're going to need to innovate our way out of this and also make some lifestyle changes too. I mean, we need new technology, but we also need to have a fundamental shift, in my opinion, of kind of how we view our place in the world. Uh, and one of those things, particularly when it comes to the United States, when we're talking about capitalism, I think capitalism has done a tremendous amount of things when it comes to lifting us out of uh, poverty and bringing us towards prosperity. but we also, in my opinion, have this sickness with excessive consumption of material goods, uh, social status, you know, social status is important, but how you define social status is even more important, in my opinion, okay? So social status among, among uh, primate groups is, as I said, very, very important. But the, one of the ways that we do that in our societies with stuff, <laughs> you, you go out and you yeah. buy things, like useless things, more or less. And this is how you kind of display to other members of your primate group or society of what your social status is. I mean, and this, this has profound implications when it comes to like mate selections, mate selection, um, basically like health, uh, the health throughout your life, et cetera. So it's really, really important, but how we define our social status 
is even more important in my opinion. And unfortunately, capitalism has made the average person think that in order to have an elevated social status, what you need to do is to consume nonsense. You need to have, yeah. you need to have all of this nonsense and just consume, consume, consume. And I don't think that that is a healthy way to approach life moving forward. I think that less is more and that we really need to start to shift our society more towards the value, a, a, a qualitative value to certain aspects of our society versus quantitative, like moving away, detaching the materialism from value. Oh yeah, less is more. Well, here you are with your fancy headset, libtard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know, I'm, I'm only joking. That's what I do. But I, yeah. you're 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 spot on, man. So, but anyway, we've been chatting for a while here. I, uh, is there anything else that you wanted to add? Otherwise, I think we'll just uh, go ahead and wrap it up. Yeah, this is probably one of your longer ones now, huh? I'm a I'm a chatty Kathy. Yeah, it's been it's been good. People podcast with me, and it goes longer than than they intended. Usually, I think because they get lost in my eyes. <laughs> there might be something to that and that wicked beard that you've got going on this it is wicked <laughs> yeah. wicked as in gross this is this beard is wicked like a hemorrhoid uh <laughs> can you fade us out to in your eyes by uh i don't know who sings that song <laughs> can I <have> your outro? <laughs> as long uh, as you sing it as long as you sing okay. it yeah, that way we can't get the copyright infringement no nothing yeah. on my end man i this is this was a lot of fun uh you and I are long overdue for a good catching up anyway. Um, so this was cool that we kind of got a chance to do that, but let's do that again soon. Um, and I, I can't say it enough. Man. I love what you're doing, dude. I think you're, you're posting great stuff. Uh, I love the way in which you're doing it, the way in which you're engaging people, the efforts that you're making uh, and stick with it, man. Thank you for having me on, dude. Yeah, absolutely. And real quick too, uh, let's, let's do a little plug for Daniel Betts comedy here. Where can yeah. they find you? Where, where, where are you? Daniel Betts, B-E-T-T-S, B-E-T-T-S comedy um, on Facebook, on Instagram. They can find my website. It's a little bit outdated, but from, from, the, um, from the website, you can find um, YouTube links, my bio, headshots, media pics, things like that. Um, all, the, all that stuff's on there. And then Daniel Betts comedy on uh, YouTube. Please subscribe. Uh, if you will, and then just check out some of my, my material and see if you like it. So find me on Facebook if you can. And uh, definitely make sure to check out the bio uh, attached to this particular episode because all of your links, all the links will be in there as well. So, but uh, yeah, Dan, thank you so much for coming on. It was great catching up with you. And for those of you turning in, tuning in uh, until next time. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, take care. Thinking Critically was brought to you by Grips Visual Marketing. They helped me to bring this podcast to life um, when it was just an idea. So that being said, if you're wanting to do a podcast and in need, don't exactly know where to get started, or perhaps you need some video services, make sure to check them out. You can find their information in the show notes.